must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey, and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Pollan, and I'm really excited today to talk with three guests from the Gunderson Health Sports PT Residency Program to really kind of get their perspective on sports post-professional education from the perspective of a resident, but also from people working in the faculty role and direct program director role within the program. As today, I am very humbled to welcome three individuals, and they are David Carney, who is the program director for the residency, Scott Straker, who is the assistant program director, and Vien Vu, who is a current resident of the program. And, you know, guys, first and foremost, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and, and you know, share your insight with our audience regarding this, as, you know, I really appreciate that. But, you know, before we dive into sports residency, would you guys mind just sharing some background into who you are and how you each got involved with the Gunderson program to where you to where you all are now? Uh, yeah, Brandon, I'll I'll start off. This is Scott, and and I I'll start off. I'm kind of the old man here in the group, and and uh, I've been a clinician since uh, graduated from PT school in 1989. I came back as a second degree candidate at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. Went through my PT education and uh, got out into practice. Uh, I had been a certified athletic trainer prior to this. Uh, started with Gunnarsson in 1991, and uh, one of my colleagues and, at the time, professors, George Davies, had been very instrumental in the uh, development of sports residencies in the section level, and then we were one of the initial sites that uh, started uh, in 1996. Um, I, since doing this, I've always been kind of, I almost want to say a rah-rah kind of a guy because I just think so so highly of the to residency education because of some of the things that I experienced going through school in terms of like I felt like even as a second degree person with some experience I came out and there's still lots of voids in terms of like you know how do I really get into my practice and work and, and things and and the clinical education albeit has really advanced a lot since I was in school it's still I think you know I think my bias is that, you know, residency education is, a, is something that I hope as it evolves and grows that it kind of continues. And so, so I've been very excited to be a part of it uh, right, from the, right from the get-go. Yeah, this is uh, David. Uh, I've been involved with the sports residency program uh, here for about the last 20 years. Uh, I graduated from the University of North Dakota with my athletic training degree and subsequently took a job at Gunderson. And that just happened to coincide with the first year of the residency. 
Um, and I spent my first six years uh, from the athletic training side on the residency. And I started as an athletic trainer and worked with the, the residents from an event coverage standpoint and uh, transitioned from that uh, to being more of a primary mentor with a few of the residents and, and uh, working with them at the high school that I was at. And after six years as an athletic trainer, I decided I was going to go back to PT school. I also went to the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse, and George Davies was also a mentor uh, of mine and, and a colleague and coworker uh, as well. After graduation, I was hired back with uh, Gunderson and uh, started teaching within the didactic portion of the residency, teaching the um, lumbar unit and SI uh, joint uh, unit and basically progressed from there to a role with mentoring uh, and then eventually started assisting with more of the emergency medical response practical examinations and then in 2018 we uh, uh, started with the associate residency director position and i uh, started with that position and was assisting scott then with the administrative duties and then more recently in january of this year now i've transitioned to the residency director and have been lucky enough to have Scott stay on as my associate uh, residency director. It was, a, it was a coup, Brandon. He took over. It was a coup. It was a coup. And this is Vienna, and thanks again for having us. Uh, my background was I was born and raised in California. I went to PT school at University of the Pacific, and then I worked for about seven or eight months or so in California, and then uh, Scott and Dave accepted me into the program, and I've been here since June 2018. Well, perfect, guys. I think it's good that, you know, you each have such a unique, different perspectives and backgrounds. And, you know, in Vienna, I want to kind of ask one starting up question to you, you know, since you're kind of relatively engaged and newer in the program, you know, since there's so many sports residencies out there, what specifically made you choose the Gunderson program? And, you know, what was that application process like to maybe someone who's considering a residency who kind of just wants to know, at least from an N of one standpoint, what is, what's that process kind of like? Yeah, for me, the, the application process itself was very straightforward. It was, just went on RFPT cast, filled out the application. Um, there was a supplemental application, but I think it was something like me putting in my name and address is really simple. Uh, main reasons I did it was the history of it. So I think it's its 25th year now. And just knowing that it's been in place for a long time, uh, a lot of alumni, uh, I went to a lot of Con Ed course in California, and even there, the speakers there and the locations that hosted it, I mean, Gunderson would just come up every time, and a lot of them got their training here. Um, so heard about it then, and then at the same time, I was on a Facebook group, and someone else was asking about sports residencies, and uh, specifically Gunderson, and this was the same time I was looking at it, and then Sarah was last year's resident and she answered like, hey, give me a call anytime. And I actually kind of uh, hijacked that and took her info down and gave her a call. And she told me everything about the program. She was super happy about it. She was also from California. So we talked about things we were fearful of, um, but uh, mainly the weather. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's been great ever since. And that's how I found about, out about it. And then the interview, it just, yeah, really cemented things. I, I, like, I love the people here. Um, weather still getting used to but uh yeah it's a strong program to me and uh, i've gotten everything i've wanted out of it i love it and, and vn one quick follow-up have you before you came to the midwest did you ever have to deal with any snow in california or is this a totally new experience for you 
So sometimes it would rain in California. It was pretty crazy. Like water would drop from the sky. But, uh, <laughs> and, but besides that, no, I mean, I love Lake Tahoe, but I'd say the cold it gets in Lake Tahoe is like 30 degrees. And I mean, you can go snowboarding with without a jacket. So I, I thought I was ready. Um, <laughs> it's, it's pretty different. It is. It is. And it, it's interesting now because I grew up in the Midwest and now I'm on the East Coast and I feel like I've gone the exact other way. I, you know, I it was so cold tolerant initially and now I'm on the East Coast where it's warmer. And I'm like, gosh, I can't go back to cold anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've become a wuss now. Um, but, you know, guys, I know that, you know, every sports residency has some similarities, but also some unique differences. And I think that's a good thing. Um, but to get an overall background on the Gunderson program, Dave and Scott, would you guys mind just kind of outlining the program's curriculum to get an idea of the structure and, you know, implementation on, you know, this program, on what these residents are going through? As you said, a lot of them have the same core components. Uh, those common components would be just the clinical practice that's uh, focused on evaluating and treating athletes. Uh, our residents have a 20-hour work week with clinical practice. Uh, all clinical residencies have a one-on-one -on -one mentoring uh, requirement for us that uh, is broken down into five hours a week. Um, we currently have about five clinical mentors, and each mentor spends two months with each of our residents, and we currently have two residents that are on, uh, on board. And uh, the EMR uh, training is also a common or a core requirement for all residency programs. Uh, for us, it mainly consists of athletic training room coverage and event coverage. Uh, the residents have a primary uh, mentor that's an athletic trainer at an area high school. And in addition to that, uh, have access to uh, Summer Northwoods League uh, baseball uh, team that consists primarily of Division One and Division II uh, baseball uh, athletes. Uh, they also have some access to a Division Three uh, university uh, that we cover in the area. And lastly, the, the other common requirement is the didactic instruction. And for us, that consists of uh, four, or excuse me, uh, one four hour session of a week of lecture and lab. Uh, our didactics uh, are based off of the description of residency practice and cover upper extremity, lower extremity, spine. Uh, they include biomechanical assessment of gait, throwing, golfing, biking, and sports-specific testing. Some of the other um, uh, practice uh, areas or curriculum areas include, for us that set us apart, our, our, our residents are teaching assistants within the University of uh, Wisconsin Lacrosse with their primary uh, musculoskeletal instructor, Paul Reutemann. And the residents uh, have to uh, digest the information uh, at a higher level uh, in order to be able to teach that information and discuss, obviously, the uh, upper extremity and lower extremity uh, curriculum with the students. Uh, in addition to being uh, the TA, they're, they're also uh, teaching at, one, at least one lecture uh, per semester, and they have the option of uh, teaching additional uh, topics or areas of interest, and they can, there's some flexibility with that and can work that out with the primary instructor. Lastly, we also has a, have a research component in which our residents uh, design a research uh, program, take it through the IRB process, uh, recruit uh, participants, 
and then hopefully collect their data within the year that they're here and start their statistical analysis with the hope that uh, they'll be presenting at a national conference. And uh, typically our residents are presenting at the combined section meeting of the APTA. And, and Brian, if I can, if I can say this too, it's been kind of an interesting ride, so to speak with, you know, just over time, this is our 23rd year that we've, that we've had a residency program about 20 years for being accredited when we first started the accreditation process. But the curriculum speaking to that really has evolved over time. It was very interesting to go through our first visit, our first accreditation visit and the demand for residency education in general for for the curriculum is, has to be advanced. It can't be entry level. And at the time when we first did that, you can imagine, so what constitutes advanced, advanced curriculum? And in our concepts, the foundation that we set forth that's still pretty much in place, but it's evolved, obviously, we've updated, we always update our information, is that we have the core where they're teaching and that's from a universal year-in, year-out feedback from the residents. That's a highlight. They enjoy the teaching. They enjoy interacting with the students. But the concept with the curriculum thought process was is that they were going to go back in and listen. They, they aren't just teaching, but they listen to their primary instructor. Most of the time, the majority of the time, they haven't had this individual, Paul, as, the, as their primary person. So they're still hearing entry-level education. But they're listening to it just like you or I would be at a continuing education course as they're now experienced. So they're seeing patients there. So they're able to listen to this content and still be able to think advanced questions, it, you know, be able to participate in the, in the lectures, and then be able to obviously have that interaction with the students, which helps it evolve. So that keep, that was a, that's always been a big part of, I think, uh, you know, a big selling point and stuff, not just the teaching, but I think it still helps their that piece of that didactic piece. And then the other piece was the advanced curriculum, which we call clinical rounds, which, which our, our faculty has created. Everybody takes certain body regions and topics and stuff. And so we've created that ourselves. And then in addition, over the course of the year with feedback from the, from the residents and graduates, We've expanded to include like the review course that the sports section provides for the uh, for the SES. There's a complete review of that, and, and then we obviously have other curricular components that we've added in an exchange program with the Vail program, an exchange program currently with the University of South Dakota, uh, and then they have visitation at other sites that they're that they're doing too. So I'd like to think. In fact, I'm kind of jealous every year when the residents trottle off to Vail for five days and. And they get to see things at Vail that they aren't able to, to experience at our place. And then the Vail residents come to our place for content that they aren't getting there. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's kind of fun. So that's just, I, wanted to, I mean, it, I guess my point is, is that everything that Dave said is exactly spot on. It's exactly spot on. But over the course of time, and I think this is true for all of the accredited programs, we have to be responsible to maintain the quality of it expand with the times, keep current with the literature and the evidence, learn from our current, our current residents and stuff like this and get feedback and then progress. And it needs to take place on a basis. Which makes complete sense. And I mean, that's something that we've kind of taught when we've talked to other program directors, not necessarily for sports programs, but other residency fellowship programs as well. That's a very common, similar message as well. And, you know, I'm, with all that you guys had just said and with all that's involved with this, I am sure that that takes a lot of time, work, and organization to make that happen because there's so many moving parts involved. 
I'd really love to know how you guys have developed this system for the faculty and for the organization to be able to really pull all this off when it comes to like organizing classes, the administration work, including like the abtry work, um, treating patients, teaching, mentoring, like so that it all gets done. Like how do you guys like, how do you guys basically get it all done? If, if I can, yeah, I'll address that just because I've been in it from the get-go. And, and, and again, it, it's, it's really something that's evolved over time. When we first started the program, when we first went through our initial accreditation, I had no administrative time. I just did everything outside of work. And so writing the documents, starting, you know, some of the, you know, the clinical mentoring, designing, you know, and, and obviously the faculty were involved, but they also did it all in their own time. Uh, but it has evolved over time where the medical foundation, Gunderson Lutheran Medical Foundation, uh, initially approved, a, you know, the director position where I get I only have, I have five hours of administrative time per week, which in some cases and certainly sometimes of the year is very adequate. But but there's what we found over time uh, that five hours from a director position wasn't necessarily enough. And hence the last couple of years that Dave mentioned earlier that we developed the associate residency program director, which is very, very helpful for the, the crunch times six months out of the year during, during midterm exams for the residents, recruitment, interviews. And then we, we have the, the true two trains kind of meeting. We have the residents, the current residents finishing up in May and June, while the new class is, you know, these guys graduate on a Thursday in June, late June, and the new residents start the next Monday. So there's no downtime. So you just kind of run right into it. So, but bottom line is that the foundation as a system, the foundation, Gunnarsson Health System has been very, very supportive. They have embraced physical therapy and specifically sports physical therapy on an even platform with their other medical residents. So from an administrative standpoint, we're very well supported. And then you asked also, Brandon, about the faculty, and that's evolved over time to where our faculty who do our teaching in our clinical uh, you know, clinical rounds or advanced didactic stuff. They basically, again, that's not done in their own time. They take, you know, there's time blocked during their schedules and uh, there's no uh, problem in terms of productivity, you know, uh, levels and things along those lines. And so they have time for that. And then also with mentoring, uh, the way we work our mentoring, the mentors will actually uh, close their schedule. So they have their schedule blocked for an afternoon and the residents and the mentor then will schedule on top of that. So from an administrative standpoint, that's another, you could say that that's X number of hours per year that is not productive clinic time producing revenue, but that's another sort of, I sort of feel, well, that's the cost of doing business. And, but they've been very supportive of it. And I think that, uh, uh, we've been able to be, I, I would say, a pretty cost-neutral program based on our billings for, for our program and, and how, it, how it works. But I think no matter where you are, what program we're talking about, I think ultimately you have to really do a, do a pretty good task analysis of what's required, look at your bottom line, and then there has to be that administrative support that comes, comes across. That, that's a consistent thing. And I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think beyond that, uh, we have... Uh, the support of the other clinicians that we work with as well, the physician staff, the PA staff, um, the athletic trainers, the nurses, and uh, MAs, and then the patient liaisons who are actually scheduling our appointments. Um, and it's, it's really the buy-in of the whole department that makes this run as smoothly as possible. 
and without their collaboration, this would be a much more difficult process trying to get all the pieces of the puzzle together because that's really what it is when we're, fill, when we're trying to get that schedule ready for the upcoming class, trying to, to get the, uh, the physicians so we can get them into the clinic with the physicians or into the surgery to observe the physicians then schedule them with the athletic trainers for, for the orientation pieces uh, prior to actually getting out onto the game uh, field and the getting into the athletic training room. Uh, you know, some of the other relationships that, that Scott and George prior to him worked very hard to establish with the university, Paul Reutemann and the, uh, the teaching aspect and uh, Dr. Kronosik, who's in the biomechanics lab, uh, who's one of our, our primary uh, mentors uh, for the research uh, projects that the residents do every year. So those relationships, I think, are the, the core to what we do and that provide the opportunities for the residents. And that's what I feel like Scott and George prior to him have done a good job of laying the groundwork for that. And then we can further connect with, you know, newer uh, clinicians and or um, uh, folks that might be in nutrition or uh, strength and conditioning to make new opportunities. Yeah, and Scott, you kind of just mentioned a little bit on the finances of the program earlier in terms of that, because obviously with productivity and that, that was kind of a one question I had thought of initially, but you answered that. And, you know, of course, trying to get to more of a budget neutral, you know, stance on that. Now, is that something that's kind of always been the mission? Like, is it the goal always try to be budget neutral? We've, you know what, we've tried we tried that. I mean, we've, we've, and again, I'm going to be real honest, Brandon. I mean, when we first put out our proposal with medical education to start our program, that's how we, we presented it to them because we sort of felt that much different than medical residents, medical residents, they can't bill. So you have all your medical residents in various internal medicine, family practices, so on and so forth, that they can't bill. They're not, they're not generating revenue. Our residents because of the nature of when they come in they these are licensed professionals that can generate revenue so we propose to our for to our uh, the medical education office that we could provide them with you know be able to work half time so they're only they have a 0.5 FTE clinical appointment but then during that time they're able to generate enough revenue to to uh, basically cover for the most part their their salaries and benefits and uh, and then the other and the the hard part is like really mining down in the dollars and cents with the rest of the things we talked about, like how much faculty time and administrative time and things. And I think that's probably for a lot of programs that are developing. That's those are kind of salary and benefits. That's pretty solid. You sort of know what's out there and stuff. It's those other intangibles with your faculty, like how much how much revenue you are in fact losing because. You know, are those folks doing that during the course of their normal typical day, or is that something the expectation for your faculty that this is going to be in addition to? But I think probably the the thing with that, where I think programs they just have to be upfront about, well, this is this is how we're setting it up, and I think that as long as people know the rules going in, I think that everybody, you know, pretty much you kind of agree to what you already understand the things to be. So. But, but bottom line, I'm sorry, so we answered your question. Yeah, we've been trying to really be, you know, kind of cost efficient with it. And but if the truth would be known as far as like the, the actual numbers and the budgetary numbers that, that, you know, I 
maybe fortunately I'm not given all of the, the specific numbers in the budgetary uh, data that goes into say to basically say that oh yeah we're budget neutral because I, I can't honestly say that but my my guess is I do know what these guys bill on a yearly basis we get those numbers and I believe it's pretty doggone close as far as being able to cover our expenses. Yeah Vian I'd like to kind of get your thoughts I mean you're you're not all the way through the program yet but what has been your experience regarding kind of what you've learned from the program but also kind of the the integration of all these things that, you know, Scott and Dave were talking about from your perspective as a resident. Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely notice it. Uh, it's not because like, they walk around stress all day. We just see how much everyone here puts in work. Um, you know, they're at their desk, even when they prepare, like our faculty prepare for didactics, we see them reviewing our mentoring. Um, they take a lot of time to look into our caseload. So they definitely put it in. Um, but yeah, I'd like to reiterate to them, like thank, very thankful for Gunderson Medical education um because we are clinton physicians just going to the orientation the first day i mean they're so supportive uh we get emails all the time just checking in like how we're doing like burnout wise if we have any feedback for the foundation so they're they've just been amazing and supportive towards residents and the residency program in general um but i think a lot of it has to do with just the culture here again it's been a program that's been around for a long time um <clears throat> So everyone knows that this is a learning institution uh, and a learning program. So Dr. Kurnozik, he's the main research coordinator at UWL, as Dave mentioned. And I mean, he's just, he, he mentors us on his free time. I mean, he's so busy as a chair now, but he's so enthusiastic to get us involved in research and get more people excited about research. So he's very supportive with that. Um, the faculty here, everyone knows this is a residence program and it's been here a while. Um, I'd say like if I had to average out everyone's career experience here, I think everyone's been here for at least 10 to 15 years on average. Um, so they know the culture they're walking into um, and they know it's a learning, again, they know it's a learning clinic. So they, they know it's expected of them and we're very grateful for that. Um, yeah. So it's not like we take it for granted. Um, we see the work put in, but it's been a seamless integration just because I feel like yeah, they know this is a residency program and everyone comes here to learn for the most part, in addition to our normal responsibilities. Yeah, and, and Vian, one, one follow-up to that, going with what you've kind of gone through the program at this time, what have been like the top two to three things that you've learned from doing this program that's really changed how you are and are going to be as a clinician? Um, that's a good question. I'd say the first one is just, I mean, we say it all the time, but it really is, you need to work as a team. Uh, we're very fortunate where the athletic training office with the people we work with um, every day and the physician office is literally each a minute walk for us. And so we can go back and forth and talk to patients and about patients uh, that we have questions on. So I think that's very important too. Uh, the level of professionalism in a residency program is one thing I've got out of it. I think uh, after this, I mean, it's now expected that we present. It's now expected that we try to publish. It's now expected that we try to make some posters and create this uh, or continue this professionalism and learn beyond just being a good clinician. Learn a lot about that too. And then um, now there's just so many little things in the program we learn. Like for example, Paul Rudiman, I thought I didn't, I wouldn't like the academic side, but I think the first lecture I gave was pretty rough what I felt like, but his feedback was amazing. And I felt like I got a hundred times better from learning all that stuff. So, and on that side too, I think uh, and Scott, Dave and Paul and 
everyone on the back end of it, they're, they're pretty transparent with us and they tell us, you know, what they're working on. So it also gives me a clue to see what it takes to make residence program, why DPT entry level education is so difficult to figure out. Um, and it's just not easy. So I think all those together, it's not three, but I think all those together, it's just been so valuable learning what I expected to get from residency, but also the back end of how to make education work. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great because I'm sure you've learned a lot more on top of that as well. But I think that's great that they're kind of that expectation of taking another level of your career rather than just clinical. So getting involved in leadership and contributing to the profession in some way, I think that's ultimately fantastic. And Guys, you kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but I want to kind of dive in because I understand that some programs listening um, may not have the interprofessional education opportunities or that close base as you guys perhaps do. Um, but what would you guys recommend to other post-professional programs if they're looking to kind of improve their interprofessional education experience for their residents? Like what are some tips that you guys would recommend to help improve that aspect? Yeah, Brandon, I'll, I'll kind of speak to that. I I had the opportunity to help and assist uh, in the development of an orthopedic residency down in the Scottsdale, Phoenix area about two or three years ago when they were going through their development. Uh, and they are fully accredited now as an orthopedic residency. And they had that issue. This is a large private practice network down in that particular area. And they had that, you know, which we had to kind of almost from the ground ground up kind of work on that because they were very strong in terms of like their clinic network for PT, for PTs, PT work, their orthopedic work. But in terms of those outside areas and stuff, they needed to, and what we needed essentially, I think the big common thread was, was communication and, and building off your relationships. There were a lot of people that like in that particular instance, it was almost like people that they knew, clinicians that they knew, other professional, whether it be athletic, like in sports, like athletic trainers, whether it be the doctors, the physician providers, family practice, uh, sports orthopedists, things along those lines. There was a lot of those folks that had, in terms of their private practice, nurtured some of those relationships already, already maybe from a business side. And what I think what they found was is that they were able to tap into some of those relationships and in fact, I think it became a nurturing thing to build on those relations further that actually probably, you know, enhanced some of their business on the business end too, because that's, that's especially when you think about medicine, that's the nature of, of a physician training is that they go through residencies. So they understand the culture about that. And so in order for them to have that extra interaction with then this PT provider, boy, it's a win-win because all of a sudden you're asking them for a favor to get their expertise. They enjoy coming in and providing that content. Then they see you as a, as a facility and a clinic system basically organizing this, this what it's almost like a, you know, a clinic of excellence and you know, sort of like a, a practice of excellence kind of model. And I think it's, a, and again, back to that, and again, I, back to the relationship building and how you get those interpersonal with those other people on board, I think it, it just – it, it kind of works on itself, but developing the relationships and good communication, you know, tap into those resources that they currently have. My thoughts are very similar to Scott. It's, uh, it's about developing the relationships. I know I, I, we keep coming back to that, but it's, it's very important. And um, having those relationships, you, you run into other people that can provide opportunities as well. You know, it's kind of the networking piece of, uh, meeting people and, and those people in, in practice that uh, they can gain some things from you and you can gain some things from, from them as well, uh, whether it be just in your practice or 
more specifically the the residency. Brandon, if I can add in too, I mean, like I'm just thinking of other people like within our group. And again, there's going to be a lot of programs that are going to be in communities that have access to university or college facilities. But if you look at the content that is, is required for our program, and this could be true for, again for any residency, like as an example with us, we tap into the University of Wisconsin La Crosse and Viterbo University to gain uh, lectures and content from some of their professors say like currently we just had when we had our bail the exchange with the bail residents we had two lectures that came up from that were both PhD prepared uh, instructors professors at the university in nutrition and then sports performance uh, strength and conditioning and so again as far as like developing those resources and stuff a lot of times again if, if people have in their community the ability to reach out to those other areas in town like seek out the the experts in those particular areas i think a lot of them because of just some of the, the aspects of what they're trying to do in their work they need service and they need to be involved in the community and so they're just dying for opportunities the folks that come in to do the lectures for our residents love it because they come in and they have interested intelligent people they ask good questions they're engaged and it's at a higher level that they aren't just coming in and presenting a PowerPoint presentation. So they're coming in and having a discussion. It's almost like with colleagues. So back to, again to the, it reinforces their desire to sort of participate with us. I think something that Scott also touched on is our experiences at, at the University of South Dakota and Vail are both direct results of our past residents and them going out and, and uh, starting their own residency programs and and now we're utilizing those to educate our residents and their residents. So building that program and then, you know, your, your graduates are going to go out and do some things and you can gain from that as well. Yeah. And my thing, I mean, I still try to do other things on my own too outside of the program. And my biggest feedback for anyone who asked me for tips, I tell them like, just ask um, people, a lot of people want to help other people out. And my two things I always remind people is, if you were to ask and someone said no, you'd be in the exact same position you'd be now. Um, so it doesn't hurt. And then when people ask like, well, okay, what if I make fool myself or they say no, or I build a bad relationship, I just tell people, all right, well, what if someone asked you the exact same opportunity on your end, would you give it to them? And most people say, yeah, I'd be excited. And I go, that's how everyone is and how most people feel too. So the big thing is just like, yeah, the communication um, and building relationships, but definitely don't be afraid to even start those relationships. Ian, can you can you also just speak to this? I know this is a little impromptu, but like, well, but some of the networking that you've done with other residents across the country. Yeah, so uh, it's it's great. They they let us go to a lot of conferences, and I know it's tough for some taxi and other clinicians here to kind of cover us. But at TCC and CSM, I mean, it's awesome to talk to other residents and talk about our program. So it really built a tight network, and we learn from each other. We one, it helps cope with stress if we did have any. Um, and then also it just helps us figure out what each other's doing after we all graduate. Like, hey, do you know of anything around this area? Do you know anything around this area that's going on? Um, but just, yeah, creating that relationship. And then it just, it's, sports PT is a very small circle because of everyone just wants to help each other for the most part. Well, it sounds like it's becoming so more interconnected and intertwined the more I just talk with you guys. So just learning the experience and that's all available, which I think is good. And you know, you guys had talked a lot about, you know, a lot of this earlier, and I'm just curious if there's any differences that you'd recommend, if there's any specific additions you had, like, because I know 
a lot of programs, one thing that can be tough for sports programs specifically um, is really getting solid team affiliations to be able to provide that kind of experience for their residents. Now, I know your guys' situation, that's kind of taken care of and you guys have kind of achieved it to what you guys have now. But what would you recommend apart from, you know, the relationship and those kind of things that you talked about earlier? Are there any other considerations you guys can think of when it comes to setting up success like team affiliations? I think that the, the team affiliations, when you're first, when people are first starting to look at their program development, and especially with sports, you have to have, you have to have that emergency response curriculum, you have to have on the field. So when you're first going through that development, you really have to kind of, you know, kind of hone that in. And really, you, 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 you need to look at your community, you need to look at your area that, okay, well, what's available? Okay, what exactly is available? And I think that you have to be honest about, you know, okay, so in terms of like the sports affiliations, what do you have available? What can you offer? Because this comes down with like residents that apply, you know, someone that applies to our program that wants to see division one athletes or work with, you know, professional athletes. That's not going to be us because we don't have that capacity in our community to, to do that. But so I would say that if programs are developing, um, they it still boils down to Brandon, the idea that they have to, if they, if they don't have an affiliation, if they have an idea that they, that they want to start an affiliation, like with a certain team or a certain group of, you know, of athletes and stuff, they need to start discussions probably early in the process, but go in with really good, really good idea about what the, what the goals of, you know, what the, the cost benefit, you know, to these programs and stuff, because I think that if they go in, if you talk to a program and, and they look at it as, a, as a sort of a symbiotic relationship where, yeah, they're going to take on a, a resident that's a trained, that's part of the selling point, the trained clinician that is going to provide them with some hands-on uh, work with their athletes, in some ways very skilled work, and like especially in the training room. And then on top of that, so they're going to get that benefit of having an extra set of hands. But then on top of that, then their responsibility is that they're going to have to, you know, basically manage some of the mentoring for their emergency response. But as long as that, again, you, you know, kind of get that over and, and type, you know, be as specific as they can be. So you're going to talk about the demand. Are there any costs involved? Are there, you know, in terms of equipment, uh, you know, obviously malpractice, you know, all of those things and stuff. And that's usually all the things that the, that the program handles, you know, uh, up front. Um, I, can I, can I use a specific program? As an example for someone that started, yeah, there, Peter Ames, who's the who's the director of the Fairview uh, Sports Medicine uh, or Sports Physical Therapy Residency up in the Twin Cities area, they have started a, a fellowship in hockey. So you know, professional or you know, a hockey fellowship for so for resident graduates or for people that I believe that think their requirements are that people are trained in emergency response, like with an ATC. They now have, but they've gained that those relationships with, I believe, both the University of Minnesota and um, and the um, uh, the professional the wild, the wild, wild Minnesota Wild up in the cities and stuff like this. But but again, that took you know again that took you know time and it took development with you know through Peter's efforts in order to nurture those relationships and then and be basically you know sell it you know to to the program. Yeah, and, and I can only imagine how much time and effort that took, not even from just the relationship building, but also the logistics and then accreditation. I mean, gosh, I mean, that just makes me kind of anxious just thinking about all that work. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's better now than it was. Yeah. I mean, 
I mean, if you can touch on accreditation, the initial accreditation, we were the second program that was accredited after West Point. So we were the second sports residency and our accreditation document was probably about 350 pages long. And the way that it's designed and some of the changes with ABPTRFE that's come up, it's very much more condensed. And I would say probably our reaccreditation document will probably be a little bit closer with all the evidence and, and um, things like that would be probably closer to 100 pages, maybe 125. So it's, it's really cut down quite a bit. So still a lot of work. I'm not going to lie. That's not, it's not an easy thing to, you know, kind of to, to complete, but easier than it was. <laughs> Well, and guys, you know, going back to going through that, because I know we were just kind of talking about accreditation a little bit. And, you know, I recognize that every program is going to vary based on in a system. And, you know, there's so many facets of, you know, getting started in accreditation, depending on the program. But in general, how would you guys recommend to another group of clinicians or educators that want to create a sports residency within a health system to start one? And what overall advice would you give to them to, really be the most successful in developing a really successful program? Well, I think Scott's a perfect one to answer that question well, based off of his experience yeah, with, I, with this as well, a I, consultant and, I, I think and, with, and with our program as well. Yeah, I think, within, I think within a health system, I think that if you, most times I think, and you may know this better than I, Brandon, in terms of like budgets, and I think anytime you're within a system, they're going to, you know, look at your, anything that you want to do in terms of like the functioning of your, of your department, probably dollars and cents. Like, can we afford it? Do we need it? And things. And um, the way that, again, that we approached it, and I think this is successful with, with uh, can be successful with other programs is that we based first off the need for, we had a need at our facility that we could, we could have potentially at the time when we first started the program, we could have potentially uh, advertised for another PT position or a half-time PT position and stuff. So there was there was a need in terms of our clinic practice for an additional provider for services. It wasn't just an extra, you know. So we were able to again write up write up a proposal, and this goes back to anybody that's going to be starting this. If they go to their administration. They look at the guidelines that are put forth uh, by ABPTRP as far as the accreditation. They look at, okay, so this is, this is our clinic, this is our billings, this is what we, and I think that they probably have to answer that question though, is that do they have the capacity within their current need in terms of providers? Is there enough work? Is there enough patients out there that A, they're gonna have the correct patient population that they need to see for their particular program, their residency, and you know, is there uh, a, demand enough that they're, that they're going to be able to utilize that person. Okay, so if you're going to bring this extra provider on board, you obviously need to have their schedule filled and, and things along those lines. And so that's probably the, the biggest thing. And then uh, it's just a matter of like, you know, looking, looking down at the specifics and the nuts and bolts about, you know, as far as like the salary structure, what are you going to be offering as benefits, um, you know, and so on and so on and so forth and stuff. And I think that, um, so, but as far as going in and talking with the, talking with your health system, with your administrators, I think they really have to go in and, 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 and sell it from the standpoint of like, yes, this is very doable from a clinical aspect. We can use the coverage. We need it. I think also definitely, definitely emphasize the, 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 the high, 
high points, the high points in terms of, well, what does the clinic get? What does your staff get in terms of like, if you create this program, what's the benefit? And for us, the benefit is, is that we have clinicians that come on board that are working with us as faculty. They stay engaged again, back to the smart young providers and stuff. I'm hitting him by the way. Strong. Strong, yeah. The, the young providers and stuff that keep them current. And so you can sell that to your administrators that this is going to be an ongoing professional development for your entire faculty and staff. That essentially that your money that you're going to be putting in and, and supporting that is going to come back in spades in terms of like, you know, patient, you know, staff satisfaction, longevity, people staying within your system. And I think that's true with us. We lose very few people as far as like people leaving, you know, some that's just natural and stuff, but we have a lot of people that as men mentioned that have been here for, you know, 10, 15 years. And, uh, and, but that's another selling point right from the early, from the get go is that, that development piece. And then I know from a standpoint of recruitment, well, guess what? If you have a vitalized or a vitalized, a very vital ongoing uh, accredited residency program, and then you are seeking additional providers that come on that perhaps you need some additional expertise in an area. And if they see that you're a center for, you know, excellence in terms of like providing that residency education, that's going to be another feather in your cap to be able to use as a recruitment tool. So all of those things are going to be able to be presented at that initial window where you're going to go into administration and try and sell your program. So I think those are all, I mean, those are things off the top of my head. And I, th I think there's a, a trickle down effect as well to our community because of our sports residency program, our residents are out in the community. Uh, and the high schools that they're serving know them well. Um, and it's another, uh, I think Scott mentioned this earlier, but it's another set of hands that they have at their disposal uh, to uh, serve their athletes and their athletic population within these communities, as well as the community events that they help uh, organize and cover while they're here. So it's, it's not only, uh, you know, from an administrative standpoint, but it's a, a selling point. Uh, to the community and, and a bit of a, a PR uh, uh, reach for the for us to have them as well. They're out there selling our services in addition to serving the communities that they're in. Yeah, and I mean, it just seems that, I mean, you guys are really trying to get at the triple aim there pretty much with getting all those things down, with really trying to get access and cost and really just making it kind of a win for everyone. And Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.